Our scripture reading today is from 2 Samuel chapter 14. Uh, we've been working our way through 2 Samuel, and, uh, and we're actually in 1 Samuel uh, probably through uh, leading into and through most of the beginnings of uh, the COVID time. And so here we are in 2 Samuel. We're about halfway through this book, a little over halfway through. Uh, this particular portion of the book, and remember that in Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel are just one book. It's just the book called Samuel, um, and all of it uh, showing us uh, really the uh, the development of the kingdom of Israel, the kingship of Israel. First uh, Samuel taking us through uh, the first king Saul, and then uh, half of, and then Second Samuel taking us through uh, the kingship. Uh, and rule of David. We've seen a lot of positive things uh, at the beginning of 2 Samuel about David's rule. Um, We see a man um, just under God's hand of blessing. Uh, It takes you really from 2 Samuel chapter 1 through 2 Samuel chapter 10, maybe chapter 9. And then something changes, and we see... uh, in sort of the next section of Second Samuel, uh, a king under God's hand of discipline, as we watched in chapter 11, as David uh, sinned against God and against uh, his own uh, loyal uh, people and against Israel. And we are now witnessing some of the consequences of that. And so uh, last week, uh, we saw some pretty difficult things in how how, just how wicked wickedness can be. And uh, this week we sort of pick up and see uh, some of the ramifications, some of the outcome of that. David's uh, oldest son has been murdered by his uh, next oldest son, or at least the next son in line for the throne. And that son has fled to another country, but not just a random other country. That, that son's name is Absalom. And if you read, if you remember, although... Uh, I didn't remember till I was preparing for this, but maybe you have a better memory of my sermons than I do. Uh, but back in the early part of Second Samuel, we learn about uh, who the parents of, who the mothers of all of these uh, children of David are. And Absalom's mother is the daughter of the king of Jeshur. Uh, so it was sort of a political arrangement, that marriage. Absalom fled to Jeshur after murdering his brother. And so he hasn't just fled randomly. He's gone to grandma and grandpa's house. Because what else are you going to do when you have royally screwed up and you know that your parents are pretty upset with you? Well, you go to grandma and grandpa's house because they are at least not going to be as angry at you as mom and dad. So with that, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll read the whole thing. This is God's Word, 2 Samuel chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. 
Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant has two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anything... If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that The banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought... The word of my lord the king will set me at rest. For my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. And the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant in order to change the course of things. Your servant Joab did this. But my lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. 
And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to get Jeshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut it, the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter, whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived in two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's fields, field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, come here that I may send that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Jeshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. The grass withers and the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. <clears throat> so growing up in the 70s, uh, some of the candy was better than the candy we have today, but the reality is most of it was not. Uh, and there was probably none more disappointing, no more disappointing candy in the 70s than candy at Christmas and Easter time. When you would get uh, chocolate versions of the mascots of those uh, holidays, either the, the chocolate Santa or the chocolate bunny. And, and as a kid, like, you would be so excited when you first received this, this candy, um, but it was... Uh, it was wrought with fraud and deception. Uh, you would, it would be so large that it would take your two little grubby hands to even hold on to this, this Santa. And it would be unusually shiny for chocolate, but that didn't bother you so much. And so you would take hold of that Santa and you would work up your you're still developing jaw muscles and open your mouth and take a bite out of Santa's head because you always start with the head. I mean, it was the 70s. It wasn't like Mad Max 
barbarism. Like we, we still knew how to eat chocolate at the time. So you'd bite the head off in, out of mercy. And you, would, and you would think, you would expect that there would be difficulty in biting that chocolate. But rather than feeling that resistance of, of milk chocolate loveliness... The whole thing would shatter in your hands and shards of shrapnel of Santa Claus would go everywhere and you realize that this was not a solid mass of righteous goodness. This was a hollow deception. And it wasn't even chocolate. It was more chocolatey. It was like a chocolate-flavored waxy substance and then you realize why it was so shiny. Hey, just wait. We'll get to communion. I promise. <laughs> it was just, it was a deception. It was, it was hollow. It looked like chocolatey goodness. But then once you got into it, you realized, boy, there's a lot missing from this. Now, why do I bring this up? Because chapter 14, it has the appearance of wisdom, doesn't it? I mean, it sort of sounds a little bit like when Nathan came and confronted David. I mean, here's another confrontation of David. It's, it's, it seems like wisdom, but, but the more we read, the more there's just something hollow about this wisdom. Like, there's something not quite right. Because what we see in this is a lot of manipulation and a lot of presumption. And manipulation is a cheap, hollow imitation of faithfulness. And presumption is a cheap, hollow imitation of trust. And in the end, getting what you are after doesn't necessarily mean that God's kind providences are smiling on you. It could mean that God is simply handing you over to exactly what you've manipulated. Now, we might look at this and think that this manipulation was unnecessary, especially reading our English Bibles when we see the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. Now, every English translation makes it sound the same, makes it sound like David is just, he's missing his son Absalom. His heart longed to go out to him. His heart was, was longing for his son Absalom. But that's a... Um, That's unfortunate that that's the only option you're given. And if you have an English Standard Version, an ESV that we just read from, you'll notice a footnote that at least admits that this phrase could be translated uh, that David's heart ceased to go out to Absalom. And you can write these two passages down to look up later, Deuteronomy 28.7. And Daniel 11.14, Deuteronomy 28.7, Daniel 11.14, they don't have anything to do with our passage other than they use these same phrases and they're translated in a more negative, an enemy who would go out against another enemy or that uh, the people's hearts had ceased to go out after God. They had broken covenant with God and Daniel. And so uh, it makes better sense to realize that David's heart had ceased going out after Absalom, that David's heart was actually against Absalom, it helps us understand the rest of the chapter. If David's heart's against Absalom, then we see why Joab might 
resort to manipulation. And it makes better sense of David's response when Absalom comes back to Jerusalem. So we're not really going to go verse by verse through the chapter. We're just sort of going to pick up some of the, some of the sense that we get in reading this account. We're going to look at uh, whether what, these, uh, what Joab and the, the woman do are, are, are action or are they simply manipulation. Even, even Absalom gets in on the manipulation. You know, we're going to consider whether, uh, whether there's actual trust going on or presumption and whether uh, it's God's favor or simply God's allowance. So first, uh, probably mostly throughout, mostly uh, we'll focus on action or manipulation. This is just all throughout the passage. You know, Joab's probably thinking, you know, it worked for Nathan, it'll work for us. You know, Nathan came and he sort of manipulated things. He told a story that kind of altered David's understanding of what was going on. There's a huge difference, though, between uh, Nathan's tale of the, of the two sheep owners and this woman's tale of her son. See, when Nathan confronted David, David's conscience had been dulled, and he was really, his, he was really living his life fully on emotion and feelings. But when the woman comes with her story, David's conscience is fine. He's living according to his conscience. It's his feelings. She comes with sentimental feelings about his son. How could you do this to your son? The point of Nathan's tale was to reawaken David's conscience. The point of the woman's tale is to Reawaken his emotions and feelings. It's a manipulative story that begins and, and ends with the tale of her dead son and her dead husband. And in the middle, in a very sort of Columbo way, she says, oh, I just thought of something. This reminds me a lot of uh, your situation. She puts it right in the middle as though it was an afterthought. She begins and ends with the tale so that she can basically, what they say, she buries the lead. You notice, if you look through the passage, how many times she addresses him as, my Lord the King, my Lord the King. She really starts buttering him up. Even at the end, he's, he's got the wisdom of the angels to know all things in heaven and on earth. It's like, really, calm down. She tells this tale of two brothers, an endangered heritage, involuntary manslaughter, not exactly a one-to-one ratio or a parallel to Absalom's situation, is it? I mean, she tells the tale of just boys will be boys. It wasn't their fault. There was no one there to separate them. Who could have expected anything else? They got in a fight. One hit the other. She describes it as involuntary manslaughter. The law does not. The law, even in accidentally killing someone that you're quarreling with, still calls it murder. The only time involuntary manslaughter came into the law was if you happened to drop a stone that happened to be big enough to kill someone, and it did, that would be involuntary manslaughter. If you accidentally hit someone and it killed them, 
But having a quarrel in which you didn't intend to kill them, but you still killed them, was still murder. There was not, she's not asking for David to remember the law. She is asking David to ignore the law. But she lays it on the reality that she's lost her husband already. Now her one son is dead. If the other son dies, she will be left without an inheritance, without a heritage. Her husband will be left without a name. The land that was in their name would be divided up among the tribe members. She lays it out as though it's the village. They see an opportunity to expand their own pockets. That's the real reason that they want this son dead, not out of any sense of justice. And it's interesting, David has compassion. He tells her that he'll take care of it. She's worried that the townsfolk won't believe her. She asks the king to take an oath by the Lord your God. And so David swears. All right, I will do what you've asked me to do. Everything seems fine. Until this can't-tell-a-short-story widow... Seems about to leave, and then she turns around at the door and says, Oh, I just thought of something. She has this little epiphany. This reminds me a lot of you and your son. She quickly returns to her own story to just kind of cover it all back up. But David seems suspicious. We don't really know how soon David was suspicious. We don't know how much Joab thought she was doing well. We don't know how well she was actually doing. Did she oversell? Was she like, was she overly dramatic? Was Joab in the back just covering his head like, oh my goodness, why, of all the women from Tekoa I could have hired, why this one? Is she going on and on? Suddenly the king has the wisdom of the angel of God. And so the king asks, even as the flattery continues to pile on, He asks, is Joab behind this? And again, she can't stop the flattery, but she also won't lie to David. And so it's still interesting that David grants Joab's request, recognizing that this has all been a scheme. But His granting of the request is only surface. He still won't let Absalom into his presence. Sure, he can come back to Jerusalem. I don't want to see him again. Absalom returns and lives there for two years without seeing David, his father, without being allowed into the castle. And so I don't, you know, it's a weird middle section, isn't it? That little, oh, by the way, some things you should know about Absalom. Here in the middle, some of it is to uh, warn us, to give us understanding of future events, of how Absalom is going to use his influence to actually uh, steal the kingdom from David's hands. Also, we're going to learn uh, that uh, the way in which Absalom dies involves his hair. Uh, But Absalom is uh, insanely 
handsome. Like, there's not a person, there's nobody in all of Israel as handsome as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, not a blemish on him. And we're not talking Photoshop or filters. I mean, we are talking this guy, I mean, poreless skin, beautiful hair. He cut his hair once a year, and it was about 20, did I say 20? Was it five? I don't remember. I did the math. I just didn't write it down. Five pounds of hair. Like he was an influencer. Like he was an influencer before there were influencers. I mean, when people know how much your hair weighs when you get a haircut once a year, you have a weird influence on people. And that's Absalom. People are just, they, he's got a million followers. I mean, he's making money off of his good looks. It is supposed to cause us to at least wonder about it. And even as last week we talked about how, uh, you know, beauty is not an excuse for someone to sin against you. Also, beauty is not like some qualifier for the influence you have on others. Like, it's interesting to read this here because we don't believe that today. Like, we only want the good-looking people telling us what insurance to buy or what hot dogs to eat or what underwear to wear. We don't trust you unless you're ridiculously good-looking. And the Bible warns against that. When he's described this handsomely, we're supposed to remember that, oh, Saul was described this way. Now, David was also described this way. So it's not that beauty is a negative. Beauty just is. It just exists. It's not positive. It's not negative. It could be used positively. It could be used negatively. It's just an aside. We learn about Absalom. Absalom, not to be outdone by manipulation in the manipulation category, burns Joab's field since Joab won't return his calls or texts. And so, this is one way to get him there. I'll burn down your field. It's interesting that he says, you know, why did I come home? I, sh- I mean, I, if I'm going to be treated like this, I could be treated like this at Grandma and Grandpa's house. And he does admit, if there's something to be done, David has to do it. Either kill me or get over it. Execute me, deal with this justly, or just get over it. But the way you're just keeping me at an arm's length, that's not, I mean, let's, let's do something. Let's, let's fish or cut bait. There's tons of manipulation in this. And when we try to manipulate God, we, we look very faithful. We look like we're acting very obediently. I mean, we're, it's very active. You've got to do things to manipulate God. But it's, it's, it's hollow. It's not faithfulness. It's not obedience. It's, I'm going to do this and force God's hand. Here's Joab. I'm going to do this and force the king's hand. 
And then you've got trust. Or is it trust or is it just presumption? Often we assume that uh, God can't possibly act without my help. I mean, I know what God wants, and so I really got to move things along to get what God wants. You know, it's the age-old story of, of, of Sarah and Abraham. Well, God had promised us a son, and it's not working out this way. We're going to we're gonna help God out here. He's made a promise. We're going to help him fulfill it. What are the presumptions, the assumptions that of Joab... Well, his assumption is that without Absalom, the next in line to the throne, Israel will perish. There's no way God can provide an heir. All of Israel will suffer if we don't bring Absalom back. Verse 13, why have you planned such a thing against the people of God? Verse 14, God will not take away life. He devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Again, even the false understanding of her parable totally does not apply to Absalom's situation. There was no quarrel. There was, no, there was a two-and-a-half-year plan of how he might trick his brother into coming to his house so that he could kill him. There's nothing manslaughtery about it. It is premeditated murder. And even if we allow that this account may have taken place before the birth of Solomon... Or perhaps uh, of other offspring of David and Bathsheba. We know from earlier accounts that there were other sons. And so there is still an unfaithfulness in this presumption. There is no trust, it's actually a lack of trust. God is unable to act. God's hands are bound by infertility. God's hands are bound by unfaithful sons. We've got to do something about this, we've got to take matters into our own hands. Joab assumes there is no other choice for David's successor than Absalom. Perhaps because of Absalom's outward appearance. Maybe it was simply there's no better choice. Who else to lead us but handsome Absalom? And is God pleased with all of this? Do they have God's favor? I mean, it all worked out in the end. The ends justify the means. David allows Joab to bring Absalom back to Jerusalem. And Joab assumes it's because David has been persuaded. Now I know that I've found favor in your sight. But David wasn't persuaded. He simply allows Joab to follow through with his silliness. Even David's receiving Absalom in the end. You know, he receives him and he kisses him. But this is no father of the prodigal son kiss. He's not receiving him home with tears of joy and forgiveness. Because there's not repentance either. I mean, there's no sense of repentance from Absalom. There's a sense of do whatever you're going to do. I'm tired of this. Now, I'm not saying it's the kiss of death from Michael Corleone to Fred, Fredo, but it's not a kiss of favor as much as it is simply David allows it. 
And how many times after we have manipulated a situation, presumed upon God's grace, how many times when things go the way we've orchestrated them, we just assume that God is smiling favorably. That it must be God's will because he allowed it to happen. And if he wanted to stop it, he could have stopped it. But I did all these things, and so obviously it's what God wants. Joab Joab thinks he's protecting and saving Israel from extinction, but his actions actually nearly accomplished the extinction of Israel, don't they? We'll see later what happens when Joab is allowed to live in Jerusalem. Or I mean Absalom is allowed to live in Jerusalem. Israel will be nearly destroyed by this outwardly handsome and inwardly deceptive son. How do you approach the king? Do you approach with tales of manipulation or with submission? Do you approach the king with presumption or with humility? It's quite a comparison, isn't it, between Absalom, the actual son of David, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of the enemy, the grandson of his enemy, who he receives at his table. And Mephibosheth, so hard, Mephibosheth's response is, who am I that you would consider a dog like me? as opposed to Absalom's response. Dude, kill me or don't kill me. Let's just get on with it. But that's not, that's not all we see. It's not just between Absalom and Mephibosheth. We see that same difference between John the Baptist and the Pharisees. The Pharisees so sure that they're doing everything absolutely the way they're supposed to do. And in the end, it causes them to want to see the Son of God dead. John the Baptist, who looks at Christ and says, I'm not worthy to untie your sandals. Or between Paul and the self-titled super apostles who had all of their uh, credentials lined up and emblazoned and had letters of reference, and Paul says, I am the least of the apostles. I am the least of the followers of Christ. I am the chief of sinners. How do we approach the king? He has invited us, like Mephibosheth, to his table to eat. Do we come and presume upon his grace? Or do we come in humility and receive his kindness and compassion? Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we pray that we would see not just tales of manipulation from long ago, but we would see our own hearts, our own, the ways that we presume upon your grace and favor, the ways that we uh, often try to manipulate manipulate you. We just assume that we know you've made promises, and so if the promise is made, the means to get to that promise really don't matter. 
We forget the words of Joseph that remind us that even when we intend things for evil, you will use them for good. That does not negate that we intended them for evil. God, would you forgive us for our manipulation and presumption? Grant that we would come to you in humility to receive from you, not to force your hand. We pray in Jesus' name.